Um, We're going to uh, look kind of in three sections today at the message. We're going to see that the news is Jesus was born. Next, we're going to see how, how people respond. And then lastly, we're going to look at how we respond. And so first we notice that it begins now after Jesus was born. So we know that he has been born. And so let's look briefly at who this Jesus is. And this is a little bit of a recap from last night as we begin looking at his identity. Um, Now, because we have the Bible, we don't need to guess who Jesus is. We don't need to try to figure out who Jesus is. God actually tells us who his son is. And here in Matthew, we're given a lot of information. Beginning in chapter 1, we have a genealogy that traces Jesus, his lineage, all the way back from Abraham to David, all the way to when he was born. We see that he comes through the covenant people, through David, where the great king is supposed to come. And verse, uh, also last night we saw that the child who is Jesus will be named Jesus, and his name means God saves because he will come and save us from our sins. We then see in verse 23 that his name will be Emmanuel because he is actually God with us. He doesn't just mean that God is with us, but he is God with us. And now today as we come into our text in verse 2, the Magi come and they say, where is the king of the Jews? They're looking for the king. Matthew tells us Jesus is a king, but he's not just any king. If you look at verse 4, we see that he is the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name, just so you know that. Like, I am Nick Jackson. He is not Jesus Christ in the same way. Christ means anointed, and it is the Greek translation of the word Messiah. And so, when we read the word Christ, we're looking at the Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled of the Messiah, the one who is supposed to come from Abraham, from David, who will one day rescue his people. Just so you know that, Christ is not his last name. But he's the Messiah. He's the long-awaited king who comes to save us from the enemies. And then to prove that this is who Jesus is, Matthew's going to quote a lot of Old Testament. In fact, Throughout his gospel, he's regularly going to be saying, this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill, this was to fulfill. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken. If you look at chapter 2, verse 5, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Again, proving that Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. We see that in chapter 2, verse 15, chapter 2, verse 17, and chapter 2, verse 23, All in this birth narrative, Matthew is piling on prophecy after prophecy after prophecy so that you and I would know Jesus hasn't just shown up, but he's the fulfillment of prophecies that had taken place 500 years, 600 years, 700 years, 900 years earlier. And so he quotes here in our text, in chapter 5 and 6, he quotes from Micah. Now Micah wrote about 700 years before the birth of Christ. And Israel, or Judah, the southern kingdom, is about to go into captivity. And so in order to give them hope, as they go into captivity, Micah gives them a message that one day a king will be born. He says in verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. And here's what we see. 
from you shall come a ruler. So this Jesus, who is the one who comes to save, who is God with us, who is the king of the Jews, is a ruler. He is a king, and he will shepherd my people Israel. He has come to shepherd the people of God. And so what we see is that Jesus is the shepherd king that for centuries the people of Israel have been waiting for. And so if we put it all together, Jesus is God with us, the shepherd king who comes to save us from our sins. That's how Matthew is setting this up. He's wanting us to know this. We don't have to figure it out. We have clear um, description of who Jesus is. But there's more that we see also. We see also... um, Something else about who he is when we ask where he was born. Because Matthew is very clear about where Jesus was born. If you look at verse 1, he says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. And the word Judea or Judah is mentioned about three times. Now, the purpose of Judea or Judah is that we would know that Jesus comes from the line of David. He's emphasizing this is the greater David. This is the one we've been waiting for. But there's another location that's given also. And what we see is the word Bethlehem shows up in verse 1, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 8. And so our 12 verses, we have four times the word Bethlehem is showing up here in our text. And we can say, why? Why is that important? If you look at verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. But what we have here is Bethlehem is this small town about six miles south of Jerusalem. There's absolutely nothing amazing about this town. And yet this is where the great shepherd king is going to be born. And does that seem strange? Like it's a, it's a boring, small, little town. Probably has never made the headlines for anything. And this is where the king will be born. Now if we know, like really much about anything, or if you even watch cartoons, your kids know, kings are born where? In palaces, important cities, they're born with thrones around them, they're born practically with their crowns on their head, they have servants waiting on them, and yet here we have Jesus being born in a very lowly town, in a lowly manger, among lowly people. What we see is that Jesus is a very different kind of king. He's not coming like the other kings that we read about. Jesus comes to save a sinful, imperfect people. He's not come to save healthy people. He's not come to save the righteous. He's not come to save those who need no need of a Savior, or at least who think they don't need a Savior. He's come to save those who know that they're sinful. He's come to save those who know that they're under the wrath of God. He comes to those who need a Savior. Jesus comes in humility to show us how we actually come to him also. And we're going to look at that a little bit later as we come to the wise men. So in our passage, we have a clear description of who Jesus is. And he's been building that ever since chapter 1, verse 1. But now we have these two groups of people who are going to be responding to Jesus. We're going to have the Magi, and then we're going to have uh, King Herod. Now, King Herod, and he's going to have the chief priests and scribes, so they're going to represent Israel. They're going to represent the Jewish people in the first century and their expectations. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to go uh, through about four sections. 
We're going to ask ourselves who they are, what they're doing, and we're just going to learn about this group. So we'll start out with their identity, and we're going to just compare, or we're going to contrast uh, the Magi with Herod. And so first, we'll start out with the Magi. Well, we know that they're Magi. There's not a lot else we know about them. We know that that means that they're magicians. Could be that they're astrologers. It's very likely that they were high-ranking officials. Most likely, they advised the king. We don't know much else about them. Notice we don't know how many there are. We say there are three because they brought three gifts, but there could be ten, there could be twenty. All we know is there is enough that when they enter into the town, they bring trouble everywhere because they hear the news, and everyone is amazed at what they have come and brought. And then we have verse Herod, or we have Herod in verse 1 and verse 3. We see that he is a king. In fact, Herod would say he's the king of the Jews. In 40 BC, he was declared by Octavian uh, and the Roman Senate to be the king of the Jews. Now, he's actually not a king, or not a Jew. He's a king, but not a Jew. He's actually an Edomite from Esau, not Jacob. And so we actually have someone here who doesn't represent the people of God, ruling over the people of God. And we have the chief priests and the scribes, and they're all working together with him. And he married a Jewish woman to give him more influence. But he's actually not a Jew. He married a Jewish woman hoping to win over the Jews. In 19 BC, he began to rebuild the temple. He was clever. He was a capable warrior. He was extremely intelligent and smart. And he was merciless. He defended his throne. And anyone that he was slightly suspicious about, that thought that they would want his throne, he would have them killed. This is why he killed his wife, he killed three of his sons, and he killed many others. He would defend his throne at any cost. Now, these are the two people that we have. We have the Magi, they come from far away, and we have the King Herod, who represents, really, uh, God's people with chief priests and the scribes. Next, we're given the location. In verse 1, we read, the Magi come from the east. Where? Well, we don't 100% know. It's likely that they come from Persia or Babylon, for that is where the Jews, that's where Israel was taken captive. Um, but what we know is they represent a foreign nation. They're not the people of God. They represent a people who are far away from the Old Testament people. They most likely have very limited knowledge about God and about his plan to create a people for himself. Then we have Herod. Well, he's in Jerusalem. That's where the Magi have come. Now, Jerusalem is the city of David. And that's where we're, we have the prophecy. We're looking for the greater David. David is the great king of Israel. So we have uh, Jerusalem, which is the capital city. It's where the kings are born. It's where the palace is. It's where the, uh, the temple is, which represents the presence of God. It's full of Jewish history. The point is, Herod is not far away, but he is very near. They have the Old Testament scriptures at hand. They know the Old Testament promises that God has given to the people. They are very, very near to all of God's redemptive plan. So what do they do? What do we read that these people are doing? Well, the Magi, they follow a star. And if they came from Persia, or if they came from Babylon, then most likely they traveled about a thousand miles on sand, on a donkey, to see a baby. 
just as a pillar of cloud or a fire at night led the people of Israel through the wilderness, eventually bringing them to the promised land, now we have God using a star guiding the nations to come to His Son, Jesus. Now, I was trying to remember, and I didn't actually talk to my wife about this, but I couldn't remember how we actually announced, like, Ben's birth when you were pregnant with him. I'm sure we simply called people. I'm sure we, like, Facebooked it out. I don't think we did anything extraordinary. Now people are doing kind of some cool Facebook videos and weird ways to, to I don't want to say weird, inventive ways to inform people that, uh, that children are being born and people are pregnant. But I, I really don't think we were very creative, were we? She doesn't remember, probably. It was like nine years ago. Good, I'm glad I'm not the only one who doesn't remember how our son was born. <laughs> she might remember that part. Good point, Bill. I'll call you next, next Sunday morning. Um, but the point is, when Jesus announced, or when God announces the birth of his son, I mean, he doesn't Facebook. He doesn't just send out an invite. He's literally wielding creation and making stars move throughout the sky. Most likely, this has been taking place for somewhere between one to two years because when we read later, Herod will kill the children in Bethlehem from two years years and under. So somehow this star has been going for a long time, guiding the Magi to Bethlehem. Now, an interesting question might be is, how did they know to look for a star? I mean, after all, these people are far away. They don't have the Old Testament covenant promises. Well, if you remember, when Judah was taken, Babylon, when taken captive to Babylon, people like Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego were moved into important positions. Very possibly, they were teaching those who were in command about the Old Testament history. They were teaching them about the promises of God. Perhaps they had read or heard about the story of Balaam. Now in the Old Testament, Balaam was a a prophet who was hired by the king of Moab to come and curse Israel. Moab wanted to come and defeat Israel. And so he's like, well, I'll get a prophet. The prophet will come, he'll curse them, and then we'll come and we'll defeat them. But what happens is Balaam continues to bless Israel the people of God. And in fact, in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, this is a small part of the prophecy. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And so the part that we see, though, is that there's one day a star is said to emerge And a scepter will rise out of Jacob. Possibly they knew that. Possibly that's what made them think of a star. Or maybe they knew about Isaiah chapter 60. Where we read, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they come to you, your sons shall come from afar, your daughters shall be carried on the hip. 
Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The, cam- the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And so what we see there is that it says the nation shall come to your light. Well, the light is Jesus Christ. We read that they will bring frankincense and gold. They're going to bring gifts. Very likely, this is why they bring the gold, frankincense, and myrrh is because of what they had read about in Isaiah. Now again, we don't know exactly what they knew before they came. But they had to have had some knowledge. Somehow, limited amounts of knowledge has been communicated to them. And what's amazing is with the small amount of knowledge that they had, they acted in great faith. They traveled across a desert to come see a child. So let's look at Herod then. When the Magi come, asking Herod about the birth, we see, verse 3, when Herod, heard the king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. What it means is he becomes distressed. He's horribly confused. He's very angry and upset. Now remember, Herod does not th- share his throne with anyone. And he has no problem killing anyone who threatens his throne. So hearing about the king of the Jews being born in a territory very near to him, this is not comforting to him. This is a threat to him, and he will do whatever it takes to defend himself. So what does he do? Well, he calls the chief priests. Now, the chief priests would be part of the Levites, and they're the ones who are in charge of leading the worship of Israel. They lead Israel in worship to God, and he calls the scribes. Now, the scribes, they know the law. They practically have it memorized. And so he brings the smartest people of of the Israelite culture, to him. And he says, guys, where is this king supposed to be born? And I imagine it's quite quickly, they grab the scroll of Micah, and they open it up, and they read from Micah chapter 5. In verse 6, we read, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So here's the point. Herod has an abundance of information. And all the people around him have an abundance of information. They have the scrolls of the Old Testament. They know all the promises of God. They have them there. And yet they're failing to respond in faith. I mean, doesn't it make you wonder? We have magi far away looking for the birth of the Son, and we have people who have all the knowledge and all the promises very near, and they're not acting in faith at all. Now you could say they were ignorant, but I looked this up. I wanted to make sure I understood the definition of ignorance. Ignorance is not having a lack of knowledge. Ignorance is the failing to act. No, ignorance is failing. Ignorance is to have a lack of knowledge. So I'm reading this wrong. Ignorance, see, I saw Robert, Robert shaking his head, and Robert's, Robert knows our words well. Um, ignorance is, is to have a lack of knowledge. Now, if you have knowledge, but you fail to use it, that's called stupid. <laughs> I looked it up. I said, what does this mean? 
I looked it up. I got on to, you go to dictionary.com. Check out the terms. I went all through them, trying to find the most theologically appropriate word here. If you have an abundance of knowledge, then no longer are you ignorant because you know the truth. You know what's to happen. But if then you fail to respond to that knowledge or act appropriately based upon that knowledge, that is being stupid. And that's what the chief priests, the scribes, and what Herod is doing. And remember, they're representing the Jewish people at this moment and their unbelief. I think we need to pause here for a moment. It's easy just to kind of keep going. Um, So in our text, we have very religious people, meaning they have lots of Bible knowledge and they're very morally good, meaning they keep the law. They probably have the Ten Commandments up in their bedrooms and they check them off every day as they do them very well. And yet, the strange thing is, their religion is not bringing them near to Jesus, but it's keeping them far from Jesus. You see that? They have a lot of knowledge. They're morally good. People look at them and say, well, those are... Those are good people. Those people could be elders. They could be deacons. Those are very respectable looking people. And yet they're very far from Jesus. So what we understand is that today even, and we see this, we can have abundance of what we might just call religiosity. Lots of knowledge about God and religion. We might be very good, moral, acceptable people. But we can be very far away from Jesus and we can be very far away from salvation. Religion, what it does, because religion focuses on what we do, it puffs us up. And so when we get puffed up because of our knowledge and because of our actions, what happens is that we do not think that we need to be saved. Why? Because we're good. Because when I look at other people, I see them as more moral failures, and I look at them compared to myself, and I say, well, I'm really good. That person's a screw-up compared to me. I mean, I, I check off the Ten Commandments each and every day. I'm very acceptable. I'm very good. I don't need to be forgiven for my sins. That person needs to be forgiven from their sins, and I'm sure it wouldn't take us very hard or take us very long or be very difficult for us to all begin thinking about those people at this very moment. But I think the point is, as we're reading this, we're to make sure we're not those people. Because today, here in America, we have Bible after Bible after Bible in our room. In fact, in this room, we probably have well over 100 Bibles. I mean, just in the chairs in front of you, I think we have probably 60, 70 Bibles here. And if you brought your Bibles, we could have 100 plus Bibles. I have about 50 or 60 more Bibles in the back room, so you can take these white ones, and then I can replace them. We have a lot of Bibles. We have a lot of information about who God is. The question is, Are we responding in faith to who God is and who Jesus is? Christmas ought to cause us to slow down and ask ourselves, have we truly believed in Jesus? And not just to glaze over and say, well, of course I have, but how do you know that? Have you believed in Jesus? Do you truly believe he is the king? Do you believe that he is Lord? Do you believe that he is God? Do you believe that you're sinful and that apart from forgiveness of Jesus Christ, you'll be condemned to the wrath of God for all of eternity? You see, the reason there's Christmas is because you and I are not good enough. You, I mean, you understand that, right? Like, if you and I were good enough, we wouldn't need Christmas. 
Jesus wouldn't have to be born. We wouldn't need the God-man to come entering into humanity to one day die on a cross for us. The point is, we're not good enough. That's why we need Christmas. That's why we need Easter. That's why Jesus had to come and be born so that we could be forgiven. We need the shepherd king. We need the one who is able to forgive us of our sins. God has given us our scriptures, not our, his scriptures, not that we would just know them like the scribes did, like the chief priest did, like possibly Herod did, but he gave them to us so that we'd be transformed by them and that we become more like him. The, the Jews thought their genealogy, their good works would save them. Today, many people think their good works will save them. In fact, many people in churches think, I'm a fairly good person. In fact, there's many people who, who don't gather with the church or only gather with the church a couple times a year because they say, I'm really pretty good. I just come once in a while. But what we see in the gospel is that we're all born sinful and we're born with a desperate need of forgiveness. And that's why Jesus has come. That's what we celebrate. And so what does it look like to believe? And so that's where we, we look at the response of these two groups of people. So we have the Magi. So what do they do? Well, they come to Bethlehem, and notice what they do when they see the star. Read verse 10. <clears throat> and going into, or Yeah, verse 10. When they saw the star, and the star is now over the place where the child was, so it's over the house. Don't you kind of wonder what that looked like? How close was the star over the house? I mean, I don't know. Kind of wonder. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So that's just piling on superlatives upon superlatives to make a point. That's like when my kids go to Boomshaka. Look, they all looked up at that moment. I even got a woo from Hannah. When we go to Boomshaka and we talk about that, they're like, yes, I want to go. I love Boomshaka. It's great. It's wonderful. It's terrific. I love everything about it. Superlative upon superlative upon superlative. It's amazing, right? Yeah, they're like, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, so that's what's happening right here. They're so excited that they can't contain it, and so they're just spilling out. This is amazing joy that they have. They're ecstatic at this moment. They're brimming over with joy as they enter into the house of the king, and what do they do? Well, they fall down, we're told, and they worship him. It says, in going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. So this is not a glamorous situation here. There's no gold. There's no palace. They see a mom and a child, maybe sitting on some wooden chair, and they simply fall down before the child, and they worship him, and they give gifts now, these are high court officials that would bow before their king, and they would advise their king. They have now left their king, traveled across the desert, possibly a thousand miles, to now bow before a child. What we see here is an incredible act of worship, filled with joy, filled with faith. This is the king. This is the one we have been waiting for. And they give him gifts. They're fully devoted. They give him their, their treasures. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Very likely those things represent kingliness, humanity, deity. And then we have Herod. What does Herod do? Well, we don't really see what he does here, although we do see he does not go with them, which is strange, right? You go on, tell me where he's at. 
if this is really the Old Testament greater David that we've been waiting for, shouldn't we drop everything and run to Bethlehem? But he doesn't. Come back to me. Let me know where he's at, and I'll go worship him. But he doesn't want to worship him. For in verse 16, which we haven't read, we see that he wants to go and kill the child, and he now will have every child, every male child, two years and under, killed. Herod is angry. He has fully rejected Jesus. Magi, representing the nations, have come from far to fall down and worship Jesus. Those who are near with a great deal of religiosity, remember, knowledge and high morals, they've rejected Jesus. He refuses to bow down to anyone but himself, and he certainly will not bow down to a child. And so at this moment, I think, Matthew's now leading us to say, and how do you respond? We have the king's been born. He's totally, or he's fully told us who he is, starting in chapter 1 of Matthew. Now we have two groups of people who have responded to him. Nations from far have come and worship. People who are highly religious, meaning really good in works, and know a lot of information, they've rejected him. So the question now is, how do we respond to Jesus? So that's the question. How have you responded to Jesus? Are you like Herod? Now immediately, I'm guessing what goes through your head is, of course not. I don't I think I can say pretty clearly, none of us have ordered the onslaught of children from a neighboring town in order to defend your house, your castle. Pretty sure that hasn't happened here today. But Herod's actions, while they're gruesome and they're horrific, they're pointing to actually something very violent within his own heart. They're pointing to his own sinfulness, and that sinfulness is the very same sinfulness that you and I and we're all born with. We're born with sinful hearts. We're born rejecting the rule of God. We're born rejecting Jesus and protecting our own throne, our own kingdoms. Many people reject Jesus today because they don't believe Um, They need to be saved. Many people know a lot about Jesus. Perhaps they've grown up in the church setting. Perhaps you know many people who have grown up with a great deal of church knowledge, and yet they seem to reject Jesus. They have followed many rules. They look around them, and they believe that they are better than others. They've been puffed up with their knowledge, with their good works, and therefore they do not need to bow down before anyone else. This is the danger of religion. This is the danger of religion. It builds us up. This is the pit that the chief priests, the scribes, and Herod have all fallen into. They were surrounded with knowledge of God, but rather than worshiping God, they protected their own thrones. Now here's a test. Here's here's a little test you can test yourself with where you're at. Are you leaning more towards religion or towards a relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you towards building your own works and relying upon what you do? Or are you relying upon Christ and what he has done? Notice verse 10. We go back to chapter 2, verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Are you full of joy in Jesus Christ? Do you love Jesus? Religious people are not full of joy. They might be happy at times, but rather they're arrogant and they're prideful. 
because they're continually looking down at other people. And the proof of that is as we go through the Gospels and we look at the chief priests, we look at the scribes, we look at those who are called Pharisees, regularly they're looking down upon others. These are the people that we have here. They're arrogant. They're prideful. They have no need of a Savior. So ask yourself, are are you full of joy in Jesus? Are you growing in that joy in Jesus? Do you look forward to coming into your Bible every day that you would read his word, his love letter to you that you would know him? Are you full of joy as you gather with the church that you would celebrate his birth? Are you full of joy that he's regularly pointing out sins in your life, which is hard, and I'm not always super excited about that, but that he does it so we'd be made more like him? Are you full of joy knowing that Jesus is returning? Or do you continually look at what others are doing or what they're not doing? And are you regularly concerned about what you are doing? And how if everyone actually was a little more like you, then this earth, then this church, then your community, then your house, then your work would be a much better place. That's religious people. So I ask you, where are you at there? Now at some point, we probably all struggle at acting like Herod to some degree. We're all, hopefully, as we come into relationship with Jesus Christ, moving more into relationship with Jesus, becoming more like him, becoming less like Herod. But listen, you can never bow to Jesus if you're still sitting on your own throne. As you protect your throne, you cannot bow to another king. So Jesus calls us to leave our thrones, to abandon them just as the Magi have left their royal palaces, have traveled through the desert, that they would enter into a lowly house of lowly people before what appears to be a lowly king who is actually the King of kings and Lord of lords. Have you come to submit to the great shepherd king? Just as Herod would not share his throne, Jesus does not share his throne. He calls for all of us, not part of us. He has come to this earth to be born and then one day die, which we celebrate as we take communion and rise as you overcome sin, death, and Satan, so that he would own all of us, not part of us, and that we would become his people completely. Now Matthew is leading us to respond as the Magi have responded. They have left everything, and they've traveled to another kingdom. They demonstrate great humility by bowing before a child. Remember, Jesus, by being born in great humility and lowliness, reveals to us how we're to come to him. The Magi demonstrate this. That they have rightly understood who the king is and that they come and they bow before Jesus. They reveal their worship and devotion by giving costly gifts. They hold nothing back. They bring the best of what they have and they lay it down before a child. What the world would say ridiculous, they say is a great honor and act of worship. They have rightly understood that Jesus is the shepherd king. By bowing to Jesus, they don't actually lose anything, but hear this, they gain everything. Do you know that when we abandon our thrones of self and thinking that the world revolves around us, we don't actually lose anything at that moment, but we gain everything. We gain a relationship with Christ that we'd have true life and one day be in the new heavens and new earth where we will forever be with the people of God, worshiping Jesus, experiencing great joy. 
the Magi have rightly understood the story of the Bible, that it leads us to Jesus. I want to encourage you, everything that we do within the church is because everything from the Old Testament has led us to Jesus. Jesus has not just appeared on the scene randomly, but he has come as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. In fact, he's come as the fulfillment of God's plan before he ever created. Christmas and Easter were ordained before he created. Because he's always desired, God has always desired to be worshipped through the risen Jesus Christ. Always through the risen Jesus Christ. That we would come to him through grace. Jesus has come in great humility to show us that he has come to save not only the rich, and not only those who live in Jerusalem, not only those who live in palaces, not only those who live west side Olympia, or wherever the neighborhood is you want to say, he's come to save those in Bethlehem. He's came to save the lowly. He came to save those who know they're sinful, who need a savior, who need a king. And he's not only come to save those who are near to him, He's come to save those who are far from him, like the Magi. And this is one of those truths that we see. I mean, the title today is The Joy of the Nations. Christmas is a joy to the nations. Because Jesus came, not just so those who are near to him would be saved, but he came to save all those who belong to all tribes and nations and tongues and languages. That's why we like church to be diverse. That's why we're trying to grow in diversity here. And it's hard to do that. But because God has come to save a diverse people, people from all tribes, tongues, and nations, that is the goal that we have as church, that we would be a picture of that people here today. We celebrate that God has given his son so that every nation would come and worship him. And that's why the title is Joy of the Nations. Christmas is good news not just for Jewish people, not just for Middle Eastern people, not just for those in certain continents, but for those in all the world who have lived at all times because Christ has come to save a people who will come around the throne of God from all tribes, all nations, all languages. And interestingly, at the beginning of Matthew, what do we see? The nations are coming to Jesus, right? They're coming to Jesus to worship him. If we go to the end of Matthew, Jesus sends out those who worship him to the nations that they would spread the news about him. Matthew's goal from beginning to end is to show that Jesus has come not only for a Jewish people, but for a people, a people of God who would come to him from all tribes, tongues, and nations, and languages. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not for a people, but it's for all people. Because God is building a people, a body, a bride for himself, that one day when he returns, we will be in eternity with him. And so I want to encourage you, let us come as the Magi did, and let us worship God. And as we now come into communion, I want to encourage you to spend time in confession and repentance, and spend time praising God that he has come. As we take the bread, the bread represents his body. The fact that he came as a man, that he would die on a cross representing you and me. The blood represents that he died completely and that because he died and we believe in him, we have forgiveness of sins, that we would spend eternity with him. 
And so as we move into communion, spend time in confession. If you notice those Herod-like qualities in you, those religious qualities of being puffed up, confess those now. If you want to know you're saved, repent. Repentance is a great act of worship to God. And then partake of these elements. We don't have closed communion here, so you don't have to be a member of Timberline. If you are a member of the body of Christ, meaning if you have believed in Jesus, we invite you to gladly take this with us. But we ask that you do so first after you've examined yourself.